All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It happened more than 300 years ago. A woman in what is now Poland buried with a sickle across her neck and a padlock on her foot. And we know this because this past summer, she finally made her way above ground and into the headlines. Researchers say the woman's unusual burial is a sign that people back then believed that she was a vampire. It was local superstitions in Poland to stop this body from coming out of the grave. If she was to lift herself out, she would have decapitated herself. And the padlock keeping her, probably there was at the time some wood or something attached to the padlock, it was just stopping her from getting out of the grave. That's Dacre Stoker. You may recognize that last name if you're a fan of Dracula, the classic novel written by his great-great-uncle Bram Stoker. Today, Dacre is an expert on both his uncle and, frankly, all things vampire. He's the co-editor of the Lost Journal of Bram Stoker, The Dublin Years, as well as some fictional works in the Dracula universe. This is Something Offbeat a podcast where we dig deep into some eye-popping news stories. I'm your host, Mike Rogers. For this Halloween episode, Dacre Stoker will help us peek into the coffin for a better look at vampires. Let's talk about that last name, Stoker. That's familiar to a lot of people. Tell me about your family history. My connection to uh, Bram Stoker, author of Dracula, is that Bram was one of seven children. And I am the great-grandnephew of Bram. I'm the great-grandson of his youngest brother, George. Which is interesting, though, of the seven kids, only three had offspring, and only two have branches of, of the family still alive. So you think, you know, pretty prolific back in the day, but not so. So, you know, I've become sort of the one in the family supporting the legacy of Bram. He does have two great-grandsons still alive, but they leave it up to me to help spread the word. Bram Stoker published Dracula back in 1897, and ever since, it has served as the basis for an entire genre, from silent films all the way to TV series like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and movies like Twilight. Why did he want to write about them? What fascinated him about them? It's an interesting question. That's one of the dilemmas, because, you know, I've been looking to answer that question by pulling different pieces of this puzzle for the last 12 years. This is what I figured, Mike. It's about half of it's organic. He was brought up in Ireland that has all kinds of cautionary tales involving changelings, pukas, banshees, fairies, all different versions of blood-sucking creatures that we would call vampires. So he he absorbed that as a young boy, as a sickly young boy, who I believe was bloodlet himself. So he came by some of that honestly, but he was also really a a diligent researcher. So he figured out that at the Middle Ages, that, that actually the vampire myth 
scared hundreds of thousands of people in many different countries around the world. We even in America had our own vampire scare that he had a newspaper clipping of from New England in 1896. So what he did was he, he took these sort of existing issues that were out there that scared people and figured out what was really going on in different books in the London Library with scholars and doctors considering that vampirism was real and blended it together in this novel Dracula. But the big thing is, other than the other books um, at the time of vampirism, he made his scene very real. You mentioned the realism. I mean, this is something that back in the 17th and 18th, 19th centuries, I mean, it, it was just a given among people. This stems back to misunderstanding of the decomposition process of bodies and not understanding germ theory. So a, a case like this, and this is what Bram referred to actually in one article, uh, in an interview that he gave in the British Weekly newspaper, that somebody would get, let's say, the plague or tuberculosis like in New England, and somebody in that family, you know, that person would die. And a couple of days later, somebody else would be affected by the same disease. But people didn't realize it was contagious. They thought that the spirit of the dead was coming out and sucking the life out of others in the family. They'd gather these experts in superstition and they'd go to the grave sites with torches and crosses and open up the grave, exhume the bodies, and they'd find something they've never seen, a bloated body with sort of juice around the burial shroud. And they thought that that body had just had a messy meal of blood. That's why it was so fat. They didn't understand the gases. They didn't understand the fluids le leaking out of the mouths. So what would they do? Their you know, antidote for this was stake them in the ground or cut their head off, as the superstition says, stick it in between their legs, take out the heart, do all these different things so that creature could not keep coming out of the grave or their spirit and sucking the life out of others. The feeling was that it couldn't possibly be anything organic. It had to be supernatural. Yeah, that was, you know, what we end up with even to this day when we don't understand things. If we don't get it, we lean on superstition because people want an answer. And that was the closest thing to giving them an answer that they could do something about. And by going to the grave and, and sticking the body into the ground with a stake, or in some cases, Mike, they actually would take out the heart. This was done in New England a lot to uh, Mercy Brown, which is the famous one in Exeter. They actually burn the heart at crossroads, cook it, and then make a potion out of it, like a tea on steroids, <laughs> and feed that to the people who were affected by the vampirism. And in a funny way, it must have worked because they did this over hundreds of years. So sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but they kept doing it. So I'm, I jokingly say maybe it was an early form of vaccination. Who knows? In the U.S., there are some people who still believe that vampires may walk among us, according to a YouGov poll from last year. I don't know if I'm more surprised how many Americans think or believe or say that they've seen ghosts as I am that 8 or 9% believe in werewolves and vampires. Some people today, back in the real world, they do identify as vampires, correct? Yeah, this is a, kind of an offshoot, Mike, of uh, the gothic culture. And that, you know, these are people that sort of, let's say, worship or identify with the darkness. And so they wear black, it's black makeup, you know, tattoos. And I've actually met some of these folks, you know, they're very normal folks. One guy, ironically, actually works at a hospital in, in the blood bank. And he says, it's not because I steal the blood. What they actually feel, and it's, it's a bit of a sort of a, you know, counterculture thing, is that they need a little bit of blood 
you know, from somebody who they share an experience with. That blood giving experience is usually a, a small incision on the shoulder, all voluntary, mind you, and that drinking of the blood to give them an energy source that they can't particularly get in medicine. It's not my thing, but I, re I recognize it and I, you know, my hat off. If that's, that's what they want to do, that's what they want to do. But, you know, I, I've been to these parties, I've been to these balls, I'm interested in, you know, how this actually relates to Bram Stoker's novel. And it's really not that much related to novels as much as it is a lifestyle these guys and gals are looking to, uh, to fulfill. Has Hollywood added to the myth over the years? Have they added things that weren't included in Bram Stoker's book and, and weren't beliefs of the time? Well, you know, what they've done is capitalized on this er early literature. And Bram wasn't the only one that Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu wrote Carmilla, John Polidari wrote The Vampire, J. Malcolm Reimer, Varney the Vampire. All these stories fueled the fire for, first of all, Dracula being pirated by this German company, Nosferatu, and made the first film in 1922. This is actually the 100th anniversary of Nosferatu. And that capitalized on specific things going on in Germany, which was the plague brought on by rats. And obviously they had a Dracula character. But we fast forward, Mike, to Dracula was adapted onto stage. And what happened when it went onto stage, we had a major transformation from these really ugly Draculas like Revenants from the Grave to a Bela Lugosi on stage. Later on, Frank Langella, you know, this was huge on stage, but what we got was a much more attractive, handsome leading man. And then of course, Lugosi goes on film in 1931. And we have, you know, years of universal films with John Carradine, all these others. And then Christopher Lee for the Hammer franchise, you know, comes all the way up to the seventies. And then what we get is Hollywood is doing something magnificent really. And I think Bram would have been proud is they're humanizing the vampire that Bram made popular and making that vampire look like a runway model or the girl or the boy next door. Which one is your favorite? Because you, you mentioned Nosferatu. I, I go back to that Max Schreck is still, 100 years later, absolutely terrifying. Yeah, that's a question I get asked a lot. And uh, who's my favorite? Well, I, I, I take this two different ways. I totally agree with you. Schreck was amazing. His Count Orlock depiction was so much like the way Bram described him. But is it faithful to the novel? That was quite faithful. I like what Gary Oldman did in 1992, Bram Stoker's Dracula. But they had the advantage of a lot more sophisticated uh, costuming and makeup and designs. You know, I also love Christopher Lee. He had a, a stretch of seven uh, roles of Dracula, and, and he was wonderful too. Lugosi, twice. Um, there, there are so many. I don't have one favorite. Um, I just I just think they've all done a great job keeping Bram's legacy alive uh, with what they're with their handed with in the eras in which they are made. I, I, I'm glad you mentioned Gary Oldman, though, because he definitely belongs in the conversation. Is there anything about Bram Stoker or Dracula or just vampires in general that, that you wish more people knew and understood? Well, that's a loaded question. So I'm going to go for uh, what I wish people would know about Bram, because that's really my mission is to you know, help people understand the creator. The creation is kind of overshadowed the creator. And, and Bram, you know, he, he, he should be recognized that he is now as a writer of a classic amongst all the famous writers from from Ireland. He, he, he sits at that table now. He was actually a very normal person who had 
a, a strange childhood, uh, mysterious illness and, and stories he was told of premature burial and so on. Uh, but he, he he emerged from that to be a very productive member of society. Things that he did will blow you away. He was not only a founding member of the Dublin Painting and Sketching Club, but he was actually a theater manager for Henry Irving that helped revolutionize the stage and helped Henry Irving become the first actor ever knighted. But he also wrote a legal manual, uh, The Duties of Clerks of Petty Sessions, that was in use in Irish law until 1962. So this guy did a, gave a tremendous impact during his life, not only Dracula, but he was a pretty well-rounded guy as well. You ever wish you could sit down with him just for one day? Absolutely. I, I, that would be my dream come true to sit down and just ask these questions. Some that you've asked me, why did you write this? Where did you get your inspiration from? I wish he'd written an autobiography, but in absence of that, I do all this digging and try to fill in those gaps for him. Just this month, an adaptation of Anne Rice's 1970s novel, Interview with the Vampire, that debuted on AMC+. It's yet another example of how vampires continue to maintain a place in pop culture. What year did Bram Stoker write Dracula? 1897, so this is the 125th anniversary uh, of Dracula. And vampires continue to have such a hold on our imagination. We're just fascinated. What is it about them that keeps us interested? That's the $64,000 question. Here, here's what I think. I think, first of all, the fact that vampires can keep changing and become relevant because different writers invent different tropes, different writers put them in different situations. So the incredible adaptations that the vampires can go through because of creative writers, that's half of it. The other half, Mike, and the, the final piece to me really is the allure of immortality. You know, as long as that sits out there as something that might be attractive to some people that that sits there as something vampirism can offer and so i think that's that's the other piece of it is what happens you know after death and as long as vampirism is out there in popular culture and, and in film and entertainment yeah maybe people are attracted to it i'm mike rogers and thanks for listening to something off beats this episode written and produced by Lauren Berry and Chris Blake, with audio editing by Chris Blake, original music by Myron Kaplan, and editorial support from Cooper Mall. And to keep listening, please subscribe to us on the Odyssey app or Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have your own offbeat story that you think we should cover, please send it to us at somethingoffbeat at odyssey, that's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.